Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Helping you have great relationships with people on your, your support team, you know, structuring their incentives in those relationships so that they, they want to make the business overall better. And it's not just all one-sided or selfish either for them or for the business, but like aligning their incentives with the incentives of the business, that's going to cut down so much stress and make your business better and easier to operate, but also help you build a really great corporate culture. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro, uh, but it's not about me today. It's about my very special guest. This is going to be a unique sort of business-centric episode for all you game designers out there. Uh, today's guest is the founder of the Executive LP and creator of Profit From Legal, a program specifically designed to help small to medium businesses use legal support to improve profitability. They are also a preventative lawyer who serves small businesses and startups. They are the author of the How to Structure Your Business for Success and will be publishing a book called Profit from Legal. And finally, they host the same by the name podcast, Profit for Legal. With that, I would like to introduce to you, Noel Bagwell. <sighs> Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> Hi, Noel. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so... For those, you know, me and Noel uh, connected on this site called Audrey, Audrey Audrey.com. It's basically like a collaboration podcasters resource situation that I'm still. It's, it's, uh, it's Audrey.io actually remember. Audrey.io. Yeah. If you go to Audrey.com, you'll you'll end up in a different place, but Audrey.io is uh, great. It's a great platform, isn't it? For, for collaboration. If you're a podcaster, I'm a podcaster, you're a podcaster. And as long as you have a podcast on, uh, Apple podcasts, you can connect Mm -hmm. through Audrey. 
but, you know, for the people who may not be aware, in addition to whatever I said in my intro, why don't you give a brief introduction of how you present yourself to the world for people who may not be aware of who you are? Yeah, so I'm an entrepreneur first. I uh, also happen to be a lawyer. Um, went to college and got a degree in philosophy back in the day. Uh, went to seminary for a year, did not stick, <laughs> left uh, without completing my master's of divinity, worked in luxury property management a couple of years, and then went to law school. And when I was there, my mentor really opened my eyes to the world of economics. I got top marks in the economic analysis of law class, took all the business law classes I could take, and really wanted to position myself to be in-house counsel at a, at a big company. I wanted to be the general counsel for a company. But when I got out, you know, the legal market in terms of jobs and that sort of thing was still reeling from the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, it had been a few years, but things had not really recovered. Um, and even though I was offered a job uh, with a, a lawyer that I had clerked with in law school, um, he made me a very interesting offer that I uh, that put me where I am today. He, he said, you can either take a job as an associate in my firm or I can rent you this office space in my building and you can just hang out your shingle, be your own boss. And, uh, you know, of course with my entrepreneurial streak, I was like, Oh, okay, well let's do that. So I did, I hung out my shingle and I was super miserable. Like a lot of people who start a business, um, I knew what I did, but I didn't know the business of what I did. I, you know, there's working in your business and then there's working mm-hmm. on your business. Mm-hmm. I knew how to work in my business. I knew how to be a lawyer. I didn't just didn't know how to do law office practice and management really well. So, you know, getting new clients, like building sales funnels. I mean, it's a business, right? Your law firm is a business and you have to build a business. You have to do marketing. You have to do sales. You have to do accounting. You have to do human resources. There are like all these aspects of running a business, no matter what your business is, whether it's creative or it's legal, or it's you know providing any kind of goods or services, you have to know how to run the business. And that was not something that I was really well prepared for in law school. So when I got into practice, I had to figure it out for myself. And I wasn't very happy. But I did have um, some clients who were coming through my office that had all had the same problem that I started to notice. And I think the first uh, reason to start a business is because you notice a problem in the world that you can solve and that you can charge other people to solve. And the problem that I noticed was that small business owners had um, preventable legal problems, but they were not hiring a lawyer in advance. They were not getting any kind of preventive legal service. And I would ask them, why didn't you hire a lawyer in the first place? Why are you now paying thousands of dollars in litigation expenses for this lawsuit when you could have paid a couple hundred dollars to have a contract, you know, and avoid avoid all of this nonsense? And they were like, well, you know, lawyers are expensive and they charge hundreds of dollars an hour. And really, it's more expensive to wait until you have the problem than it is to prevent it in the first place. But it was difficult for them to quantify from where they were in the process. And mm-hmm. so what I decided to do was reinvent the business model for a law firm from the ground up and really start asking the question, if I were an entrepreneur or a small business owner, what would I want my relationship with my lawyer to look like? And so we we uh, oriented that around a subscription-based legal service um, and you know predictable 
predictable billing was the was the real first answer that we had. If businesses could budget for this, if they weren't paying by the hour for the lawyer, if you're paying by the hour, you can't budget mm-hmm. for the lawyer because you don't know how many hours they're mm-hmm. going to spend. You're agreeing to a rate, not mm-hmm. a price. But we thought, okay, if we can just make this something that they can budget for, then they can have the lawyer in advance, and it's, then it's just our job to communicate. Okay, this service really is worth what we're charging for it. Here's the you know have a good conversation about the value proposition. So the first half of my law firm's existence, that's really or more than half really up until about last year, that was really what we focused on was outside general counsel services, um, which is just ongoing legal support for your business on a subscription basis. Um, and charging a value-based fee and not charging by the hour for those services. Um, And then recently, like last year, we started developing profit from legal. Because honestly, if I'm really honest, um, while the outside general counsel subscription-based services um, did what they were designed to do, it didn't generate as much interest in the service as I thought that it should. And I started asking why that was. Why aren't we getting the kind of response that we ought to be getting? And the answer was two things. Number one, I wasn't really like advertising and marketing except by creating content, word of mouth, and stuff like that. So I wasn't going like broad spectrum. I had very little brand awareness um, and still to a degree do. Um, but more than that, we weren't having conversations about return on investment. Like if you spend X dollars on legal services, you're going to get Y return on that investment. How do you get lawyers to demonstrate that they can pay for themselves essentially? And then some, and I could point to success stories that I'd had with my clients, like had a client who paid a little less than $17,000 for a year of legal services. And in a single weekend, I saved him over $50,000. So like the value proposition was strong. I had a different client that had a mergers and acquisitions project and he paid under 40 under $40,000 for that M&A project, we saved over $1.5 million. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) The value proposition is enormous. Like hiring the lawyer in the, in the first place in a preventive proactive way is a really beneficial thing to do. Um, but communicating that to people in a way that gives them enough confidence to hire you is, is actually a really difficult thing. So that's the journey that I've been on in a nutshell. Wow. (laughs) I mean, for me, I know very little li- legal, legal little, uh, very little about legal matters and uh, and legal tools as well. You know, I, I it always comes to be a headache for like taxes and things like that for me. You know, sure. and I know this isn't sort of a finance directed episode, but my point is that what it sounds like to me, and from what I've done in some cases of my own personal research, both for you and in this sort of arena is that I love that you approached the concept of defeating. I watch a, um, a YouTube channel called the future, uh, with Chris Doe, great channel for anyone who like wants to get some insights on how they approach like graphic design and logo design in a business sense, but also approach business matters for creatives in different fields. But Chris, often harps about the value proposition process of pricing. What is it? What is a logo worth to this mom and pop shop in the middle of Kentucky versus what is this logo job worth to Apple or Nike, right? And those prices are going to be different because of both A, the amount of reach that particular brand has and B, what is it they can afford? Because, 
you know, <laughs> Chris, Chris always says, I'll do it for a sandwich for the mom and pop shop. I don't care. Like I have 10 years of logo experience and it's going to take me 15 minutes to figure out something really nice for them. And it's only going to touch their storefront. Whereas for Nike, I'm going to charge yeah. $2.6 million because that's what it's worth to them. It's going on, it's going on clothing. It's going on boxes. It's going on websites. It's going on a ton of brand awareness stuff. And so I really love totally what that value proposition, why I bring this full circle to us is that what I love about this is that it creates clarity and it also creates the ability to mm-hmm. negotiate what it's worth for both you as the provider of the service, but also for the person hiring you. Right. Cause you talk about how, uh, you know, someone spent 17,000 and saved themselves $40,000. Right. Depending on the size of your business, you know, for me, like I don't have a lot of money to spend, but I would love legal advice. Is it that I'm only trying to solve like a intellectual property problem for over the course of the year for all of my content, right? Then maybe, you know, I'm making up numbers. I don't know what the exact value would be, but you know, it, you know for me, it's worth 5000 a year right? To solve maybe $10,000 worth of promise. I know that seems maybe small for you, but I'm just throwing out, you know, what I like about it is that a, it says, okay, you're saying that this is worth 5,000. Is that worth 5,000 to me? Is this something that we can continue to go on? Or is this something we negotiate like halfway through the year? Right. I haven't really touched base with you for any legal services or something. Can we restructure the contract or something? Mm-hmm. Whereas hourly. And so we do a lot of that thinking for you mm-hmm. too. Like you're, as your lawyer, we do a lot of that that thinking for you and we show our work, right? It's like a math problem. You have to show your work. You have right. to show the client how you got there. So what we do is statistical analysis and we look at what businesses spend nationwide, like the statistical averages and like what they report on, what they spend on legal services. And there's this ancient quote from an ancient Roman philosopher and it, it goes, everything is worth what its purchaser will pay for. Right. We know what things are worth because we know what people have been willing to pay for those services. And so we can look at what people have paid and then we can adjust those like national averages for various Mm -hmm. markets. Like Dallas is going to be 11% more than the national average. Uh, Cool Springs in Nashville is going to be exactly the national average. Nashville downtown is going to be 1.5% higher, you know, like you can go into pretty much every major market in the, in the United States and see what the adjustment percentages are uh, off the national average. And then you just take the average spending um, and adjust it accordingly. And so you can kind of know what things are, what various services are worth in various markets. And we use all of that um, in a proprietary value-based billing formula that we developed over the course of about two Mm. years. And we use that to, you know, so basically what I can do for a small business owner is put in the size of their business into our formula as measured by their Mm -hmm. revenue. And if they're like a $1.5 million business or an $11 million business, I just put that figure into uh, our our um, algorithm and it tells us what their annual budget should be for preventive legal Mm -hmm. services based on legal spend and and we adjust that based on the number of attorneys that we have working for them and the market that they're in so we can really create a scalable service because to your point you're right a bigger business those services are worth more they're they're going to pay more it takes Mm -hmm. more 
effort, more time, more uh, legal acumen, all of those things that go into what constitutes the legal fee, it takes more to support a big business than it does the mom and pop shop. So the mom and pop shop should spend less. And that that's just common mm. sense. And that, that goes into the scalability of our services. And we have a couple of services for businesses that are under a million dollars in revenue that are designed, they're flat fee services like our uh, legal lifeline, for example, Legal Lifeline is $4,800 a year. Mm -hmm. It's only available to businesses that have less than a million in Mm -hmm. revenue. And it includes unlimited remote legal consultations, unlimited legal research, and some other really key services. So, like, you can basically have this Lifeline to your lawyer, ask any question, get any answer that you need. Um, You don't have to worry about feeling like you're in a cab with the meter running, (laughs) you know. Uh, It's this sort of concierge legal service. Um, and it's, it's really designed for the micro business and for the, for the startup. And that, that was a solution that we came up with to make sure that, you know, they had incentives to call the lawyer because a preventive lawyer can only do their job if you, you as the business owner call them early Mm -hmm. and often. So if someone signs up on our annual legal lifeline plan, um, we send them an email every week that says, Hey, don't forget to check in this week for a 20 minute chat with your lawyer. Just tell us what's going on. Just give us an update. And we use that to forecast their legal mm-hmm. risk and give them recommendations about what they should be doing based on the life cycle of their business. Like what phase are you in? What are your current goals? What are you trying to accomplish? What new assets, intellectual property, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, are you developing? And we really try to hit three dimensions of every business in terms of, you know, what we're delivering for them. Mm-hmm. One is creating value, adding uh, value to the business so that your business is valuable. The second one is mm-hmm. stress. And then the third one is risk management. Um, on my mm-hmm. podcast, on the Profit from Legal podcast, I just recorded an episode with a friend of mine in Trinidad named Kevin Valley. He is a business valuator, certified business valuator. So his whole job is to put, you know, the value stamp on businesses. Your business is worth this, right? And he said it really comes down, the value of a business comes down to two things. One is risk, and which can drag down the value of your business. And two is growth, which pulls up the value of mm-hmm. your business. So anything you can do to lower risk and increase growth is going to dramatically amplify your business. And Kevin says that legal is one of the biggest force multipliers mm-hmm. for that. That's, I mean, I, I agree. I've, I often, me and my partner are currently in this sense of like trying to get our taxes together, especially after the whole uh, COVID lockdown situation, lots of people's businesses are changing and how we approach our own personal finances have really adjusted in the last year. And, you know, it's, it's becoming a really big headache for us to try to do it personally. I'm like, Hey, what if we just spent the $300 to just like take this to someone who's going to make sure every nook and cranny is filled out and that we get as much back and we're not like kicking ourselves in the ass later for not, you know, accounting for this asset or something, something to that effect. Right. It's a a good thing to spend your stimulus check on, you know, especially if you haven't really been able to do it in the past. Um, getting that stimulus check right now, uh, the Biden bucks or whatever you want to call them, like getting that in your, in your bank account, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to test out using a lawyer, using an accountant, something that you've always told yourself, oh, I wish I had done this, or I wish I could do this, but I don't really have the money. Well, now you have a little extra Mm -hmm. money. Um, try it, 
see what happens. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I've, I've been having my taxes prepared by somebody else for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in college and you know, I was working three jobs to put myself through college um, and just kind of struggling for a long time, I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. I know, and I did my own taxes and all of that. But the, I think it was the first year that I ever had someone else do my taxes. They looked back and they found uh, they had me like review. Uh, they had me bring in my prior year's returns for them to review as well. And they found money that when I was in college and I filed my taxes myself, they were like, "Oh, you didn't claim this." I don't know if it was a credit or a deduction or whatever, but it was it made a significant difference. Like I got, they said, "Let's go back and file a revised tax return for that mm-hmm. year." And you know, I think I got some money back from the IRS. I don't remember how much it was, but um, it was kind of cool. You know, it's like, wow, okay, so using using an expert, they really are going to see things that even though I felt competent to do it myself. And I thought, oh, it's not really that complicated. I'm just a regular W-2 wage earner. It's not like I have a whole bunch of investments mm-hmm. and things or whatever. I can do this myself with TurboTax. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when Tim got, I don't know if you remember this, but Tim Geithner, who was like Obama's mm-hmm. Treasury Secretary, was called in to testify before Congress about his his tax returns and some irregularities. And do you no, remember not this? It happened like... Oh, okay. Well, he did, and he blamed he blamed the irregularities on TurboTax. <laughs> I was like, dude, you're the Treasury Secretary. You're in charge of the IRS. Like, that's your whole job, and you're going to look over here and blame TurboTax? Yeah. Okay. Yikes. Uh, so maybe have an expert do it. Maybe don't use – I mean, I'm not here to knock TurboTax. That's fine. But maybe before you file it, like, have a real CPA review your tax yeah. returns. Yeah, I think it's totally worth it because it eventually, like, it pays for itself, you know? Like the three hundred dollars or whatever you spend on a CPA, they make you a three hundred additional dollars you would have never found somewhere, right? Like sure. right there, it's it's free money, and you know you did it right. Like you don't have to, you know, think about the IRS potentially breathing down your back five years from now. You know, that's a big thing. There could be saving you the cost of mm-hmm. an audit because the IRS sees that return that a CPA has signed off on, and they think. Okay, if this was the the taxpayer, they have every incentive to lie and to cheat on their taxes. But a CPA, if they lie and cheat on someone's taxes, then the CPA could lose their license and lose their livelihood. So they don't have quite as much of an incentive to lie. And I think that, um, therefore, I mean, there's there's been some studies on this, but if a CPA signs off on your tax return, if they prepare your tax return, you're at the margins less likely to get audited. You still could get audited. There's still a good chance of an audit, but... You know, if there's something that that flags the IRS's system to trigger an audit, then you know it could still happen. But at the margins, it's less likely to happen. Using a professional in advance, whether it's a lawyer, an accountant, you know, whoever, right? Um, they are going to be able to create real value for you. It's not just a cost center. And what we're doing with Profit from Legal is really designed in a specific way to show people how to use legal services and to actually accompany them. It's not just a like a mastermind class. It's not just uh, – you, are you familiar with the levels of implementation? I am not. Okay, so for gamers, this is a really great concept, right? Because it's level, it's a level sure. system. Okay, so you have level one is let me show you how to do this. Level two is let me do this mm-hmm. with you. And level three is let me do this for you. Oh, yeah, you. yeah, yeah. And 
Yeah. So this is level two implementation. Profit from legal is we are accompanying you. We are hand in glove with you, developing systems and processes, uh, intellectual property assets, programs, um, and you know job responsibilities and roles and workflows with our clients. We're developing all these things with our clients so that they are equipped to use legal services in order to be more profitable. And most small business owners, just like me, when I opened my law firm, I I knew legal, but I didn't know the business of law very well. Most people that run open a business, it's like, well, I'm a creative. I know how to do graphic design, Mm -hmm. or I'm a creative. I know how to do web design, or I I do copywriting, or I do voiceover Mm -hmm. acting, or whatever it is that you do. I know how to do that, but I don't really know that much about the business of earning a living by Mm -hmm. doing that. And, um, you know, you need someone to show you that the the business element of how to use legal services in that business to make the business more profitable mm-hmm. overall, whatever your creative endeavor is. And for the lawyer, for creatives, it's going to come down specifically to creating some really great intellectual property assets, you know, a great portfolio of, of assets that make your business subjectively valuable, uh, helping you have great relationships with people on your, your support team, you know, structuring their incentives in those relationships so that they, they want to make the business overall better. And it's not just all one-sided or selfish either for them or for the business, but like aligning their incentives with the incentives of the business, that's going to cut down so much stress and make your business better and easier to operate, but also help you build a really great corporate culture. Uh, and then of course you have the resilience building, you know, making sure that your business is equipped to weather a storm. Even a black swan like COVID is something that a highly profitable business is going to be much better equipped to deal with than one that's like just kind of trying to make it month to month mm-hmm. already. They can be very liquid in those in those moments of uncertainty, right? Uh, yeah, and have structures in place where they're already diversifying, mm-hmm. they're already working from home. Like diversity isn't just about ethnic diversity. It's also about diversity of thought, diversity of opinion. It's also about diversity of sources of Mm -hmm. revenue, like not having a client, not having uh, a client, a single client that generates more than 10% of your whole business's Mm -hmm. revenue. Like if you've got one client that represents 30% of your business's revenue, they can pretty much set the mm-hmm. terms. Like if, if they know that, if they know they represent 30% yeah. of your whole business's revenue, they can pretty much demand whatever they want. And you're going to agree to it because if you lose that client, you lose 30% of your revenue and that might not be something your business yeah. can survive. So you need to diversify there, but also vendors and suppliers having more than one person that you can go to, to have a problem solved. Like if I'm, if I need something designed for my business, if I need some graphic design work, I've got a guy in South Africa that I use, and he's really, really great. But what if he's not available? Uh, I need to have someone else that I can also send graphic design projects yeah. to. So I have to diversify my vendors and suppliers and stuff like that. Diversity is really, really important. Diversification is really, really important in a business. This is already all beautiful stuff, Uh for thank you for all that so far, Noel. Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, so I'd like to push this into sort of like the arena of game design now, or or talking about the creative business, right? Um, and this may also share yeah. things like graphic design and, and other sort of similar industries. But two sure, two of the yeah. big 
sections of legal that a lot of the listeners had questions about. So I poked my discord about, Hey, as anyone who's listening, if you're part of the discord, maybe I'll ask you some listener questions to join the discord, you know, a, a shameless plug here, but <laughs> two of the big arenas are copyright and intellectual properties. In fact, one of our listeners mm-hmm. today, uh, or excuse me, a week ago went through a very troubling instance of producing a game that was very good. Uh, everyone was on board for it. They went to Kickstarter and then they got some unfortunate backlash because it tied so closely to another property. And I don't want to name either of those properties. I don't want to point any attention to this person. Uh, Sure, but sure. a lot of these, um, uh, basically the big arenas, intellectual property and copyright, especially as we get into more intellectually, uh, intellectual property style games, right? Like, uh, people who are licensing Marvel to create board games, people who are licensing video game properties to become written content in RPG fashion. So I guess to start off, what are some of the basic things, uh, that we should know about both? Cause I know, I know they're different, uh, intellectual properties and copywriting as it comes to maybe like naming a game or uh, what it has to do when you're sort of trans uh, transforming that work into another work. Sure. So intellectual property is the big tent. It's the big umbrella. It's the big net term or concept for a variety of other pieces, parts, terms that fit in into intellectual property, right? Within the big tent of intellectual property, you have a booth called copyright. You have a bo- another booth called trademarks, mm-hmm. and you have another booth called patents, and then a final booth called trade secrets. So among the big te- or under the big tent of intellectual property are copyrights, trademarks, patents, and trade mm-hmm. secrets. Now, a trademark is any mark, or it can even be like a, a jingle, you know, a bit of a piece of music, whatever. Um, think about the fanfare, like 20th Century Fox fanfare, right? Like all that, you got the spotlights going, it says 20th Century Fox. Okay, all of that is a trademark, even the music. That's all a trademark. The MGM Lion, raw, you know, big thing with MGM, Metro Goldwyn Meyer, that's trademark. Um, any mark that would indicate the source of goods and services is a trademark. And so it's a mark that whenever somebody sees that, they know, okay, this product that I'm consuming came from this particular producer or provider. That's the whole purpose of a trademark. There are also service marks, but these days uh, that's a bit anachronistic. Like it's a bit, I mean, it's still a thing. You can still use it, but service marks really are just like, if you see the SM instead of the TM, that just means that they're specifically talking about a service and that they're not delivering any products. Uh, products are goods. Services are services. They're consumed, you know, as you use them and it's one human delivering it to another human and there may not be any residual thing left. You think about like a massage mm-hmm. that's, you know, pure service. The only thing that you're left with uh, after that service is consumed is just feeling like a big noodle. That's <laughs> yeah. it, right? Like that's that's the end of that service. You're not you don't get something to take home with you. Um, but if you at the spa, if you go get a massage and you buy the robe as well, okay, now, now you have some goods. So um, the spa's name or whatever, like if it's you know waterfalls med med spa or whatever waterfalls relaxation spa um that waterfalls if that was the name of their business that could be a trademark uh and they might they might use tm they might use sm 
if they're not selling any bathrobes or any products or anything like that, they're only selling massage therapy services, they might use that in connection with an SM mm-hmm. mark. But if they're selling goods of some kind, the robe, the essential oils, whatever, then they, they might use a TM. And these days, a TM can in, kind of include the SM. So you see much fewer people using the SM mark uh, anymore. It's just easier, and, and people consider service marks to be almost a type of trademarks. And it's a little bit of intellectual laziness, but hey, that's where our society mm-hmm. is. When it comes to copyrights, um, copyrights are are the rights that are held, the ownership rights, the creative rights that are held in connection with a creative work of any kind. So pictures, photography, illustrations, graphic design of any kind, uh, mixed media stuff, uh, books, poems, films, songs, you know, like whole songs, not just like a little, <laughs> you know, f- phrase of music, like a jingle, but like a whole song, something like that. All of that would be copyright eligible material. And the copyright springs into existence the moment a creative work is completed. So as soon as you create that work, the person who created it owns the copyright. Now, in order to defend the copyright legally, you ought to register it. And now in the United States, it's a little different from in like a country like Canada. If you hire someone when it comes to works for hire, if you hire someone to create a work for you in the United States, the default rule is that the person who hired the creative owns the copyright because it's a work for hire. They essentially are paying for the ownership right when they hire that person. In Canada, it's flipped around. It's it's the other way. In Canada, if you hire if I hire a graphic designer to create a logo for my company, the uh, I get a license. I'm essentially buying a license to use that logo, mm-hmm. but the graphic designer still owns the copyright. They actually own it, can use it, repurpose it, sublicense it out to other people, and mm-hmm. so on. The contracts between businesses and creatives um, can actually change those conditions. You can you can contract around the law, mm-hmm. or you can change the default rule in the law through contracts by using contracts. So the contracts that govern the relationship between a person who's hiring you to create a work um, and the person who's you know being hired to create the work are absolutely essential. It's very, very important to get those right. And a lot of those deals today are done on a handshake. It's just a handshake deal. There's no written contract. And that's terrible because you don't really know. It's, it's sometimes very unclear what it is that you're paying for, what it is that you're getting, what the limits of that are, who can use what. It can be confusing. Uh, but having a well-written contract for services for the creation of intellectual property, whether it's copyright, trademark, whatever, um, is very, very important and can leave you in a much stronger position. Mm-hmm. So you definitely should do that. And it's not nearly as expensive as you would think. The other two are difficult to deal with. They're a little more difficult to deal with. Patents deal with schematics and uh, prototypes and like functional things. There's only one thing that I can think of that can be both copyrighted, copyright protected, and patented, and that's software. When the code is written on a page and published in a book, then it's it's copyright-eligible material. If it's hard-coded into an electronic device, then it's patentable. Mm. That's the difference. Like functional software working, doing a doing a thing, um, that's patentable. 
but in pretty much any printed or other like visible readable context, it's copyright eligible material. So protecting software, you really kind of have to keep your eye on the ball with both copyright and patent. Um, especially if you're like writing manuals that display your code and this is how you do this thing. If this is how you debug this or whatever. Um, and then finally the trade secrets, we just passed a couple years ago, the defend trade secrets act in the United States, which really added a lot more protection to trade secrets. But really these are the things that are valuable because they are secret. You think about the formula for Mm Coca-Cola, right? Um, could that formula be patented? Yes. Would you want to, would you want to patent that? No, because <laughs> the moment you register the patent, it's public and people can just make their own Coca-Cola mm-hmm. at home. The thing is only valuable because nobody knows the whole formula. I think it's broken up into several parts and only, you know, one person only sees one part of it at a time. And so like it's, it's, uh, you know, they've done a whole lot to protect their trade secrets. Trade secrets are things that are valuable because they're secret, even if they would be eligible for other kinds of intellectual property protection. They're the kinds of things that, um, they might be systems, processes, unique know-how for how a thing is created or de- delivered or what your process is for being more efficient. Like you might be the most efficient producer of X and the way that you create this product might not be completely unfamiliar uh, to the market as a whole, but your particular pattern for doing things like your particular methodology. We do this step and then we wait X amount of time. And then we do this step and we add these ingredients, the precise way that you execute on the production, um, model might be a trade secret. That that's one thing that could be a trade secret. It's very important that creatives and business owners of, of every stripe hire a lawyer in advance and, disclose to them because you have attorney client privilege. Your lawyer's not allowed like to disclose all of this. Your secrets are safe with your lawyer. Um, but to disclose to your lawyer, how things are going on, like in your business, how you get the results that you're getting, what you're doing, what you're creating, and let them advise you about how best to protect that. Let them advise you, okay, well you should register this trademark as a word mark, just the, the name of your mm-hmm. business, but you also should register it as a composite mark by combining it with the word mark, just the name of your business in words with your logo. And, you know, cause you're using it all together in these contexts, you know, with these products, you're stamping it on this product or whatever, or you're using it on your website to sell these services. So you really should register. Yes, you should register the word mark to protect the name of your business as a trademark, but you should also register a composite mark. And you might even want to, if you're using your logo separately and putting it on things, you might register that separate from the composite mark. So for a business that has a word mark, the name of their business, a logo, and then they use a combination of those things, you might actually be registering three separate trademarks, the word mark, the logo, and the composite hmm. mark. And the uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office is where you register those trademarks. And if you do the online-only application, it's called a TEAS Plus or TEAS Plus application. And it's the filing fee is $225 uh, per mark per class of goods and services. When you go to register your trademarks, you're registering them on a per mark, per class basis, which means they're registered in connection with a certain class of goods and services. Uh, There was this guy back in the day who tried to register the word stealth (laughs) for like everything. 
stealth. It was like he wanted to own the word stealth. And anytime anybody tried to use the word stealth, he would send them a cease and desist letter. He'd say, I own the trademark to the word stealth and you're using it, you know, in connection with these goods and services. And I'm the trademark registered trademark owner for this. And so you have to pay me a license fee. And he basically extorted money out of Mm -hmm. people threatening to sue them for trademark infringement Mm -hmm. until the trademark court just threw him out and banned him for life. He was a trademark Mm -hmm. troll. He was basically doing what people do with domain names, but he was doing it for mm-hmm. trademarks. It's not illegal to camp a domain name and like extort a ridiculous fee. Even if you're not using it for anything, you can do that with a domain mm-hmm. name. You can't do it with trademarks. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you can't just like register something um, and then just camp on it and extort money from people. So that's not like a viable business model. Please don't try to do that. There are bad consequences for that. But if you're actually using it, or if you want to file um, an application based on your intent to use it, if you're saying, well, I have this trademark, um, and I'm not using it right now, but I'm in the, the business planning and business development phase of my business. And you're going to start using it in commerce, commerce. You're going to, you're six months away from selling goods and services using this mark. Then you can file a trademark application based on your intent to use that mark, but you'll have to then file a separate within six months, you'll have to file a separate statement of mm-hmm. use. And if you don't file it within six months, you can file for an extension. And I think you can file up to, up to five extensions, I want to say. So, I mean, you can extend it out for a a long period of time if it takes you longer to get to market than you thought you would. Um, But, you know, every time you file one of those extensions, you have to pay for it. So, the longer it takes you to get to market, the more expensive it's going to be. What I advise my clients typically to do, just in general, is wait till you're six months from the date of your first sale and then register based on intent to use. That's going to be the right mix of beating anybody else who might want to use that mark or a similar mark to, to market, beating them to market, um, you know, first in time, first in right and all of that. Um, but also it's, it's going to make sure that, um, you know, you, you don't have to spend a whole lot of money for filing a lot of extensions. Uh, amazing. And I love also the note of like that, you can't, you can't reverse trademark a commonly used term to like, hard like yeah. to do like i don't know it is to weaponize it. i guess that's what i'm trying to say you can't weaponize trademark which is yeah. which is good to know um shenanigans <laughs> people people pull all kinds of shenanigans even in the law i mean people think of the law as this like super proper formal whatever we, there's shenanigans there's mm-hmm. legal shenanigans but we try to keep it to a minimum and typically the shenanigans don't carry on mm-hmm. too long until a judge somewhere goes okay that's yeah, enough yeah um so i guess for the lens of tabletop game design. So uh, something that I specifically want to look at is copyright and how that can have potentially legal ramifications for the designer. So let's use an example to help help tie this in. So we talked a little bit off air. Uh, Noelle and I both come from uh, an MMORPG background. And here's, here's my prevailing example. So I have a game idea, right? I want to make a tabletop role-playing game as trite as this is off of like world of warcraft right i see some interesting like mechanics that i want to turn into you know words you know uh how to do a heroic strike of a warrior but you know writing it in such a way that like it's a i'm trying my best to not 
because I'm already scared of copyright. I'm trying my best to take this really cool idea I have, switch up these mechanics, turn them into words, into like dice rules and stuff like that, instead of randomly generate numbers in a video game. I'm basically taking a video game, turning it into a writing words game. What are some of the things that I should be cautious about when I'm approaching that sort of like transformative work? When I see this thing, it get, it inspires me. I want to create something and I'm doing my absolute best as a designer to avoid copyright issues. What, what are some things I should tiptoe around? So there actually is a tabletop RPG for World of Warcraft. Um, there's it's you can go online to warcraftrpg.com and you can read about it. Um, they I think I and I could be wrong about this, but I think um, it's based on the D twenty mm-hmm. system. And Wizards of the Coast has an open gaming right. license for use of the D the D twenty mm-hmm. system. So. Um, World of Warcraft, the role-playing game, um, it actually may not be online anymore. I'm on Gamepedia, the, in the external links at the bottom of the page, there's like an archived, archived mm-hmm. here link. You can see where that site is archived. But um, it, you're going to have to license the IP if it's based on existing mm-hmm. IP. And when we say IP, we mean, in this context, copyrights and trademarks, mm-hmm. a mixture of both copyrights and trademarks. World of Warcraft is a trademark. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is also a trademark. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are the owners of the trademarks uh, in this case are um, Blizzard Mm -hmm. uh, or Activision Blizzard Mm -hmm. now. Um, Don't get me started. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And Wizards of the Coast in the case of Mm -hmm. D&D, formerly TSR and Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Right. Lots. The, The IP has changed hands over the years, both. Um, with respect to World of Warcraft and Dungeons and Dragons, but you need to find out who the current owner of those intellectual properties are, mm-hmm. or you know, of a property is, and of those properties are, and then obtain a license. Now, for something like the D twenty system, there are open licenses, and basically, to comply with the terms of an open license, what you need to do it's kind of like a Creative Commons mm-hmm, license, mm-hmm. right? You need to read and understand the license, which means you're probably going to need to read it yourself and have your lawyer mm-hmm. read it and explain to you anything that you are not one hundred percent crystal clear on. Now, this is this is an important thing that I want to explain. Anytime a person who's not a lawyer reads a document that could affect your legal rights. I have absolute confidence, or at least I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, okay, that you are literate and intelligent and you can understand it. But that's a specific kind of understanding. The understanding that a non-lawyer gets when they read a legal document is a grammatical understanding. It's an English language understanding. You understand what those words mean in the normal context in which they're used in everyday colloquial speech. It is not a legal understanding. The legal understanding of something comes from knowing how legal documents are affected by statutes that are passed by the legislature, either in a state or the federal government, the federal legislature, and understanding how those documents are affected by case law. Because in the United States, we have you know judges that uh, render opinions, and those opinions create a binding legal precedent. So a judge's interpretation 
of a context in a specific set of, uh, I mean, of a contract in a specific set of circumstances or a legal principle in a specific set of circumstances has binding authority on lower courts or lateral courts in subsequent um, legal Mm -hmm. opinions. So, for a person to read a contract and say, oh, I understand what that means because I understand the words and the grammar, like I understand the dictionary definitions of those words, that's not the kind of understanding you need to have in order to be fully informed on your legal Mm -hmm. rights. And that's why even if you're a really smart person, even if you're very highly literate, you completely understand every word of the contract, you still need to have a lawyer review it because you don't have the legal context to give you a legal understanding of that Mm -hmm. document. So when it comes to especially to something complex like a licensing agreement, uh, even for an open license, have that reviewed by a lawyer and have a conversation with the lawyer in which they tell you, here are the limits of what you can do. You, you know, what is your intention? What are you trying to do? Talk to your lawyer and have the conversation. We love Warcraft. We want to create a tabletop RPG using the open license D20 system from Wizards of the Coast to create basically a D&D that's adapted for the Warcraft universe mm-hmm. where we're using all the Warcraft characters, places, technologies, blah, 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 blah. Like oh, the whole thing, right? Like the whole mm-hmm. world. It's basically Dungeons and Dragons in the Warcraft universe instead of the Forgotten Realms campaign setting or Greyhawk or, you know, uh, Dragonlance mm-hmm. or whatever. If I didn't name your favorite one, I'm sorry. Just insert your favorite one there. But like, I like Forgotten Realms, and I'm not going to apologize <laughs> for it. So <laughs> uh, that's that's the one that got named first. Ha ha. No, I, that's uh, petty. But anyway, uh, suffice to say, have your lawyer tell you what it what it is that you can do with the IP that you want to use. But have the conversation with them, and your lawyer can help you. Like for for this in this case, you may not need to go out and actually obtain a different license from Wizards of the Coast for the D twenty system, mm-hmm. but you would need to obtain a a an actual license, like a written license, not an open license, but an actual license agreement from. Activision Blizzard to license the Warcraft mm-hmm. IP. They don't give they don't give open licenses for that. So you're going to need your lawyer to contact their legal mm-hmm. department, their legal mm-hmm. division, and negotiate the terms of a of a trademark licensing or, or copyright licensing agreement. And so that'll be a contract. You should expect to pay a license fee, and typically those are, you know, there might be an initial fee for just for having the agreement for the privilege of having that agreement. There might be an initial fee, but typically uh, the main compensation for a trademark license comes from royalties. Mm -hmm. So they might say for every dollar that you make, you have to pay us three cents or five cents out of every dollar, like right off the top before, before any other expenses, you have to pay us uh, off the top a royalty fee. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So does that answer your question about copyrights generally, about how to obtain a copyright, like what you should do if you're considering doing this and like what your general approach should be as a creative game designer who wants to license other people's copyrights and trademarks? Yeah, I think that that's certainly like my my way to sort of talk about that that proper way of or maybe not proper isn't the exact term I would use here more of like the uh, the one to one like I want to make World of Warcraft RPG. Now the thing that I really want to get to that I see more commonly is sort of like the filing off of the serial numbers, right? So I like the World of Warcraft situation, but I'm I'm not here to use like uh, uh, Duratar. I'm not here to use Ogrimmar, right? I don't want to use any of those terms. I don't even want to use like their setting, right? Mm-hmm. But I want to use things like the warrior class, the heroic strike, the orcs, trolls, elves, right? Like all those things that seem all the things that seem very like public domain kind of, right? I know we'll probably get into a, a deeper conversation of what that looks like in the copyright world, but you know, it's like how do you own the the concept of an orc, right? When it's existed in novels that have come long before World of Warcraft, right? And then also things like, I have this half version of like a combination of things. Like maybe it's, I don't know, Ogremar plus Iron Forge equals my city, right? And I just add all mm-hmm. these different elements that really transform it. And I'm not trying to say something, I'm not trying to say a piece of work that <laughs> you know, just scrapes the surface level off and then rewrites the same game. Yeah. I'm really like under the consideration of someone's like, okay, I'm really inspired by these mechanical bits and by this narrative 
that the world spins. I want to transform that into an RPG so I can extrapolate those things into different settings, into different sort of their own intellectual properties. But the real meat of the question is, how does copyright attach itself or can cause problems in instances where, like, I want to use how a warrior works, right? Like, I have to build rage and stuff. Like, I insert the the sort of rage mechanic and things. But it's not, it has no intellectual property writings of, the game, the 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 inspiration. How does that sort of tie into all of this? If that's an answerable question, or if you need a better parsing, I can. No, try no, to I it. I totally understand that. Okay, so you're talking a little bit about derivative works and the limits yeah. of fair use and that sort of thing. When it yeah. comes to saying uh, like a phrase like heroic strike, that mm-hmm. might be something that could be copyrightable in a very particular context, like a pretty narrow context. But generally, that's so vague. Um, Mm -hmm. that I think it normally it would fall under fair use, uh, for fair use, you got to look at the nature and character of the use, um, fair use strongly favors, you know, commentary, news related uses, education, criticism of things. Um, and it disfavors the, the fair use argument fair disfavors purely commercial uses. So if you're Mm -hmm. primary, uh, like if you're, uh, on YouTube, you're a YouTuber and you're talking about, this on your YouTube channel, it's probably fair use. Um, but if you're trying to make your own competing product, uh, making a fair use argument as like the thing that you hang your hat on may not be the best idea. Um, also the nature of the copyrighted work matters. Uh, generally things that are fictional and unpublished have more protection than things that are, uh, factual and widely available. So there's that, but again, Mm -hmm. it comes down to the particular formulation of, of the material, um, mm-hmm. the amount and the substance, this is where we start to get into some really subjective criteria or somewhat si- subjective. Right. Criteria. Yeah. This is exactly the yeah. amount and the substance of the portion that you use, uh, makes a big difference with fair use. Just think about the old aphorism. Less is more generally mm-hmm. the law, um, favors fair use that involves a portion of the work. That's very, very small in relation to the whole, um, mm-hmm. of, of course, if the whole work is really small, like if it's a haiku, for example, right, then, <laughs> sure. you know, you're not going to have a lot to work with that's going to be proportionately small relative to the, to the whole, because the whole thing is small. Um, mm-hmm. and then the effect, and I'd, I'd say this is the, the primary one and the biggest one, at least for me, like if I were the judge and I were in a copyright infringement case and I were making the, the judgment, what it would come down to primarily for me, the thing I would give the most weight is the effect of your use of that material on the potential market or the value of the copyright protected work. So if you make something that's so similar to Warcraft that you basically, even though you've relabeled everything and you've called everything the same, basically it's an obvious knockoff. If you do that, Mm -hmm. then I would say, expect a cease and desist letter from blizzard for copyright infringement and expect to get sued. And even if you win the law, this is another thing to think about. Even if you win the lawsuit for copyright infringement, that can be expensive. Winning a lawsuit, even if you ultimately win can be expensive. Do you have enough money to win? If you don't have enough Mm -hmm. resources to win the lawsuit, it doesn't matter that you could win the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that you could, you'll lose because you'll, you'll be, you won't have the money to fight and you'll just get blood out. 
Um, mm-hmm. So you really need to be careful about copyright infringement. It's a super serious thing. Um, a couple mm-hmm. of things are, um, I mean, there's a huge list of things that cannot be copyrighted. Um, titles, facts, ideas in general, uh, phrases, mm-hmm. like turns of phrase, and any item that's just too small or too short to have any like intrinsic, unique value. Those are all categories mm-hmm. of things that can't be copyrighted. Parody is okay. So um, I'm not going to venture into the Rule 34 territory, but let's just say that <laughs> that parody is, is fine, um, and any parodies can protect use of copyright works uh, to, in order to pay, poke fun at, at things. That's typically okay, but still... Sometimes people get hit with cease and desist letters for parodies that hit a little too close to home or just they're not considered very funny or whatever or they're offensive. Sometimes there are other problems with those parodies um, that can result in legal trouble. Um, Pretty much anything, uh, any copyright on a work created after 1978 is good for the life of the author plus 70 years. Um, for works of corporate authorship, mm-hmm. you might say, well, this is a copyright owned by a corporation, so it's not a person. It's a, it has a perpetual existence. Then the term is 95 years from the date of publication or 120 years from the date of creation, whichever is shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once mm-hmm. the copyright ex- expires, it falls into public domain. Anybody can use it. It's considered to be part of our cultural heritage, and it's not subject to copyright limitations. So things like orcs. I mean, it's J.R.R. Tolkien, right? Like, we, I mean, I, I'm not saying he invented orcs, but that he was the first yeah. one to really make it popular. So it's, I have to say, orcs are pu- public domain now. You know, you can use right, the concept right. of an orc; it's totally fine. Um, orphan works are uh, something else to think about, but um, I would have you talk to your lawyer about orphan works if you're concerned about those in particular. Like, if that's come up in your, you know, as relevant to you as a listener, I don't want to get too tedious in the conversation on a podcast, but, uh, suffice (laughs) to say, um, you just want to be really careful with derivative works that you're not stealing market share from somebody else. Like if the, the big takeaway point from this whole point, from this whole question is if, if what you're doing is so similar that, that someone would put the the original source material and what you've created side by side and and an objective third party neutral observer who's not intimately familiar with each of them couldn't really tell them apart or says oh yeah this obviously like i see what you did you took this from over here and you called it a different thing if you do that mm-hmm. copyright infringement but if it's sure unique enough or different enough that there are some really substantial conceptual differences between the two and you would prefer them for different reasons like different game mechanics or different whatever different conceptual reasons um then i would say that that derivative work might be okay because after all everything every creative work is to a degree derivative in the sense that it Mm -hmm. is um inspired by something that we've seen very few ideas just come to us from nowhere out of the ether you know that's just not really a thing yeah something we've seen something we forgot about it but our subconscious like kicks it back in like it's a new idea sort of thing totally have been in that moment yeah um so i guess sort of the last follow-up to this particular section of commentary is in that example where you're sort of setting these two derivative works side by side or the you know the quote-unquote original work and then the derivative work side by side you're sort of like saying oh these look similar 
and you talk about the market, if one is a video game and one is a, you know, pen and paper situation, is that within still within the same frame? When we talk about market, are we talking about the brand identity of the original work or are we talking about the industry in which it sits? Well, or is that, you know, kind of a subjective question? I think that the games industry is the, is the industry that you're talking about. You're because yeah. you'd be talking about like the films industry and uh, like obviously toys. Star Wars really made their money on toys, right? Initially, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. those were all licensed. the The toys were licensed IP, or they were you know based on the renderings, the film renderings of those characters. So. Mm-hmm. I think that copyright uh, copyright material transcends different uh, use cases. If you want to think about it that mm-hmm. way, um, sure. so I I don't think you, you could say I, if someone wanted to make the argument, well, I'm not making a video game, I'm making a tabletop game. I don't think that that would be a good argument. I don't think you're gonna mm-hmm. I don't think you're gonna win that one in court. So what I would say to you is. If you are porting content or content from one context to a different context, you still need mm-hmm. to worry about copyright and you still need to consult with a lawyer about your legal rights and have them advise you about what to do to make sure that you obtain the appropriate licenses. And look, uh, instead of thinking about the creators of original works as competitors, and we, we have this sure. sort of like gamers, uh, and I'm not here to criticize gamers cause I, I am one and I love them and I love the culture and everything. Right. So, uh, but we, but there are some failings that we have as a gamer culture. Right. And one of them is tribalism. And mm-hmm. you see this played out in console wars, for example, that's just mm-hmm. one example, you know, Oh, I'd like Sony or I like Nintendo. So I hate Xbox or whatever. Like it's, it, that's kind of a weird nonsense way to behave. And this tribalism tends to play out in other ways. Like when you get attached to something that you really love and you think is the best, there's this sort of subconscious or sometimes conscious psychological need to push down everything even remotely related to it to elevate your own preferred IP. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a friend growing up who I asked him, I said, have you ever watched Seinfeld? And he said, no, uh, in the 90s, I watched Friends. And I was like, but you could watch them both, right? You could watch both shows. And he goes, no, I always felt like you had to choose. And I said, what? He was like, yeah, no, I always felt like people were either Seinfeld people or they were friends people. You didn't really watch both. And I was like, I don't know how to deal with that right now. That's just kind of a crazy thing. And he was like, well, that's just the way it was. And I said, okay, well, you know, I respect it, but I don't, I don't understand it, but I respect it. Um, or people who really prefer Star Wars over Star Trek. You can love them both. Mm-hmm. It's okay. And when it comes to creating derivative works, um, I think you should see the creators of original content, even if you're creating something that you believe is superior for whatever reason, you should see mm-hmm. the, the original creator as, num- number one, a source of inspiration and respect them for that. Even if mm-hmm. there are some serious failings in their work, they've still inspired you and cr- contributed to the development of your own ideas. But also, they might be potential partners. Um, mm-hmm. They might be people who, uh, even if you wouldn't want to be in bed with them, if you wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in bu- business with them necessarily, uh, you can have an arm's length business relationship with them that's mutually beneficial. 
mm-hmm. consider the whoever was like, hey, you know, World of Warcraft would be great as a tabletop RPG. I don't know if that came from someone within Blizzard or if it came mm-hmm. from outside of that, someone who developed it. And I don't know how it all came to be. I don't know the story of the tabletop RPG for Warcraft, but let's just <laughs> say that it was a fan. Like, let's just imagine a hypothetical universe, a parallel alternate dimension where it was a fan that did that, that wanted to create a tabletop RPG, right? Maybe that fan wrote it all up in the D20 system. They wrote up a proposal and they said, we're going to basically create using the D20 open license from Wizards of the Coast, a D20 Warcraft RPG. We're going to develop all the materials. Here's the, we're going to first do the original, you know, classic WoW uh, campaign setting and everything. Then we're going to do Burning Crusade, Wrath of the Lich King, and so on, right? We're Mm going to do these as Mm -hmm. like expansion books and kind of follow the natural progression of the Warcraft universe um, with the creation of all these materials. And then they went in this hypothetical universe, they went to Blizzard and said, Hey guys, uh, we would really, we see a market for this. Like a lot of the people who play Warcraft are old school tabletop RPG players from way back who, or they're people who've wanted to get into D and D, but they have such an attachment to the lore of Warcraft and the world of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. They like, they really, what they really want to do is play a game that's like D and D, but it's really Warcraft because they love Warcraft. And after mm-hmm. all, if someone isn't playing a Warcraft branded game, aren't they kind of getting a little way, a little bit away from their monthly subscription? Like, wouldn't you prefer them to play if they're going to play a tabletop RPG? Wouldn't you prefer them to play something that is closely tied to your big money maker? And then the Blizzard mm-hmm. people go, "Oh yeah, that's great. We see a market for that. That's wonderful. We'll give you a license, but for every dollar you make, you have to pay us five cents." Um, sure. Sure. And you might say, great, well, now I'm in bed with Blizzard. Or, and, and whether that makes you happy or not, um, you, you, know, it, you don't really have to think about it too much because you're running the separate business of building the tabletop RPG. It's, it's lateral. It's related. It's closely related. It has a whole lot to do with it. It's derivative. But really, it is a separate business. It's a, you know, there's a separate, mm-hmm. uh, a related but separate market, they, those market segments between tabletop RPG players and online RPG players, they, those segments, market segments almost certainly overlap. Um, but yeah, you're are, not directly working for blizzard or Activision. You're kind right. of in your own bubble yeah. right now in this case, in this world, I, I suspect that that blizzard just was like, Hey, let's do this. Let's make a, mm-hmm. let's make a, it's kind of like hearthstone let's right? make money. <laughs> yeah. Let's make money. Let's make this separate product. Uh, after all, uh, we can completely dominate the MMORPG space, but let's take a crack at the tabletop space. You know, let's just see yeah. what we can do and, and, uh, spinoffs. And I mean, it's like you can buy a, a star Wars version of pretty much any product that you want because yeah. it's a popular IP. And if you want Chewbacca fuzzy dice hanging off the mirror of your car, it's out there. I mean, you can do that. So uh, there's really no limit to what a company can do with their IP uh, as long as there's someone out there who's willing to trade their dollars for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you should be aware of that yeah, if you're creating these balance. things and trying to license. You know, It's like, think about what is there a market for for people who are into this IP into this hobby, this copyrighted material, this world that's been created for all those people. Like what, what else are they into? And would like, would they like to have an, a branded version of one mm-hmm. of these other things that they're into? And then if you, if you think about targeting that and it's not already being done, then go back to the owner of the IP, license it out, make, make your pitch. You know, you should have a business proposal 
that you put in Mm -hmm. front of them that shows them, here's how much money you would stand to make. Here's what it would cost you to comply with us in the creation of this Mm -hmm. profit, you know? (laughs) Sure. Sure. Yeah. Especially when we're talking about that direct licensing of us, you know, you want to reformulate all the names and things into your, into this product. You don't want to stray away from not using Ogremar. You want, you want to use Mm -hmm. Ogremar. You want to use Ironforge and stuff like that. Um, Wow, that's uh, really uh, <laughs> mind blowing for me. I'm sure it's mind blowing for a ton of other people <laughs> who are listening. Der- um, derivative works are, by the way, might be more creatively satisfying. But mm-hmm. but do you want to be a starving artist, or do you want to be a? And I, people are like, well, I don't want to be a sellout either. You know, it's like, but you you do want to earn a living. And I would say that uh, you look at people like. Um, well, I don't want to call out names, but just look at successful artists out there, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do things that are their clear money makers, and then they have other projects that are their more pure artistic mm-hmm. expressions. And I would say, look at those kinds of creatives. They're the ones who are the the smartest in business and the best in business. And it doesn't take anything away from their purely creative projects or works that they also mm-hmm. have some things that they they did to make money that it's not as purely creative. It's not as bold or avant-garde or risky or whatever in a creative way. Like there's clearly a a mass appeal commercial component to it, but how can you be a long-term successful creative professional if you don't make a living doing it? Um, Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. strongly believe Alan Watts, what he said when he gave that great talk about, uh, what do you desire? Ask yourself, what do you desire? In fact, it's so great that I put it on our blog at executivelp.com. You can search for what do you desire? And there's this video clip that we just embedded right there. And it's a really inspirational thing. I probably watch it at least once a month and it keeps me focused on going after my passion and what I desire. But he Mm -hmm. talks about not making the money, the main thing. And I a hundred percent agree with that. You should follow your passion. You should do what you'd love and not make the money, the main thing, but that doesn't mean that you should ignore it. There's, Mm -hmm. it's not all or nothing (laughs) at the margins. All decisions are made at the margins and at the margins, you do need to pay attention. You need to pay marginally more attention, at least in the early phase of your career as a creative to the types of projects that are likely to earn money for you. The longer you are a successful creative professional and the the bigger your portfolio is, the more success, financial success you've had proportionally, the more freedom you'll have to take bigger risks. That's what paying Mm -hmm. your dues means. It means now people have come to value my creative work and I've done things that other people, other people value. I've created for other people for so long that now they respect me and my creative vision. I've earned that. You don't just start Mm -hmm. off with that. You're not entitled mm-hmm. to that day one. You're not. You have mm-hmm. to go out and prove that you can create things that other people value highly. Well, once you do that, then you will have paid your dues. When you're able to make a living as an artist, then you get to do purely creative things. But to go out and say, my work's as good as so-and-so, I'm going to say, who's willing to pay you for that? Who's If so-and-so's yeah. selling, if Andy Warhol's selling, you know, paintings for millions and you're like, oh, it's just the same thing four times in different color palettes. So, so effing what? Or it's a Campbell soup can. So effing what? Mm-hmm. You know, I could do that. Yeah, but nobody's going to pay you millions of dollars for yours. 
they will mm-hmm. a Warhol because it's Warhol. Um, yeah, it's the it's the brand of Warhol that provides the value to that piece of artistic mm-hmm. creativity, which is you know when we talk about the difference between a creative work and like a functional work, right? Because mm-hmm. For your business, we talked about how you can look at the trending of like, what is this specific service or product worth, right? We pay $3 or 2 bucks for an apple or for a bushel of apples or whatever, because that's the common thread at which people are willing to pay for that function, right? And that's mm-hmm. kind of like the baseline. But when it comes to art, at some expense, it's sort of a luxury product, right? And we don't really have like a function for it. So it's hard to put a price a specific median line price for it. So now that artistic endeavor gets attached to the person, the brand, how you feel about who is creating that piece of art at the end of the day. Or it might be a functional thing in, in a, from a psychological or spiritual perspective. Yeah. It might be like, well, when I look at this uh, rabbit in the snow painting, mm-hmm. that's just like different mm-hmm. textures and shades of white. Basically it's just a big white canvas, white on white right? Rabbit mm-hmm. in the snow. Or I'm, I'm thinking about that painting that uh, Kingpin loved from Daredevil, mm-hmm. the Daredevil series mm-hmm. on Netflix. And he would look at it. Yep, yep. Um, so like, what is the effect of something like that worth? What's mm-hmm. the, the profound effect of a painting with every time you see it, it grabs you and it pulls you to a particular memory or a particular emotion. It centers you. What is that mm-hmm. experience worth to you? If you can create right. art like that, don't tell me that's not functional. I mean, it's it definitely sure. is. That's a good point. That's a very good point. But you I'm have to know that words. and you've got to sell. No, well, I mean, it's just the thing. You've got to sell that. You've got to know that that's, mm-hmm. that's the function that art has. It's about mm-hmm. evoking a specific emotion, like a specific piece that grabs a specific person and it grabs them so hard and it directs them to such a particular experience that they're willing to trade you dollars for that. That's, mm-hmm. that's how you know that you are a great artist, that you can create things that are not just compelling for that one person, but have that effect on many people. Mm-hmm. And when you, your work has that compelling effect on many people, then you're a successful commercial artist. Um, now, to, to create things that are for you, you say, well, my art is for me and I create for me and you know it, it has this profound effect on me. I'm like, great, you're, you're now a market of one. And a supplier mm-hmm. of one, you're 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 selling to yourself, um, so mm-hmm. that's not universally valuable because you're just if you have resources, you're just like, well, I'm going to pay myself for this, so you're just shuffling resources mm-hmm. around. You're not like actually getting them from another person. So I, I think mm-hmm. uh, people who are successful in business create things that other people value highly. That's one of the fundamental laws of economics. Is you know people get rich by helping others. People get rich by creating mm-hmm. goods and services that other people value highly. And if you mm-hmm. want to be successful as an artist and, and like in your career, be a professionally successful artist, you have to create art that other people value highly. And the more you do that, the more your personal grand will grow, the more cachet you'll have, the more authority you'll have, and the more you'll have the freedom to create things that really inspire you because you, People will you know the sort of the credit that you've created for them for years, the social credit that you've had from mm-hmm. that you've built from moving them all these years will translate into just love for you and your partic- your particular feeling or uh, nuance or your artistic voice or however you want to describe it. People will start to value that intrinsically, and then whatever appeals to you, they'll they'll buy it. And even if it's silly, I mean, like. Um, 
people, there have been lots of silly art projects that have resulted in a lot of spending, you know, like high, mm-hmm. high value art projects that when you look at it objectively, um, it's just, just like, why, you know, it's a dude mm-hmm. that slathered himself in paint and rolled around. I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. those are those sort of abstract, um, those sort of abstract works they're they're valuable because of who created them uh, and who they sold them to and other things, but they they don't necessarily have mass appeal, uh, but that doesn't mm-hmm. make them less valuable to the people who are willing to buy them. It's just a, it's right. a niche. So you should also, you know, carve out your niche, speak to your market mm-hmm. and you have mm-hmm. to know like all of these things that you do as a creative that make you a good creative, a good artist or whatever can also make you a good business business person. I think that today's world requires leaders who see through the eyes of an artist, not data analysts, not, you know, uh, numbers crunchers people. I think it's really the artists who will lead because we live in such an emotional world, but you definitely need the support of the number crunchers, the data analysts, the professionals, the lawyers, the accountants, all of that. And you should listen to them. You should listen to them and involve them early and often in your decision-making process and then take their advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely formed that council around your own particular support system and hire those inv- individuals that will do that side of the work for you so that you can focus on producing that emotional support for the greater human populace. Totally. Right? Yeah, totally. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, wow. Uh, well, I think sort of the last, again, thank you for all that. Really, really good stuff. Um, the last bit on here, I guess the last two bits on here, uh, you sort of already slightly covered it when you talked about the OGL for D&D, for the D20 system. Uh, but I did have a question from a listener about the legal perspective of a system reference document like the Open Gaming License. So there's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a game called Blades in the Dark by John Harper that has a sort of uh, 4.0 cre- Creative Commons license attribution type of thing. Put our logo in this little paragraph in our book if you're using any sort of pieces from our SRD. The reason I bring it up is because this sort of falls into that same section of derivative work concepts, right? Some people, um, at least under my assumption of the listener question, is that when when uh, it's going to be subjective, it's going to be nuanced, it's going to be complex. There's no two ways about this question, but what is the point in which you would attribute that work and i think this is similar to the derivative works question of like the original source when do you put that mark in there when do you have to attribute and then like when is your work so far separate that like it you don't really have to but you may still be like for example if uh in in his game there is a concept of clocks it's basically a circle that's segmented and it represents progress tracking in some fashion within the game I've put clocks into my game, but it's the only thing that I've put into the game. And it's not an original concept by his work, but it is a part of his SRD. So do I, do I put the light, do I put the attribution license in there? Or do I just have a little sentence blurb that says, Hey, this, this has some basis off of the blades in the dark game. I think it's always good to pay tribute to your sources of inspiration. It's kind of like if you were Mm -hmm. writing a, a paper in school, uh, and you used a little quote from a book that you know you'd read or a report that you found. 
it's good to have mm-hmm. a citation there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think, unless you're taking his concept of clocks mm-hmm. and you're utilizing sure. that particular concept, I don't know that you necessarily need to worry too much about the license. Now, is his is his Creative Commons license uh, the no derivatives license? Because there are some that are no derivatives, non-commercial use. There are quite a few Creative Commons licenses. And so you'd have to look at the particular Creative Commons license that he's that he's using. Do you happen to know which one it is? Let me see if I can see it in this book that I have. Because there's like CC0, there's the public domain mark, there's sure, the sure. attribution mark. Um, the CC one sounds similar. Like that, the... Let me see if I can pull up the SRD. Jeremy, edit this section out. <laughs> this dead air. Uh, so there are the yeah, some rights reserved... And and the uh, you need to make sure that you're combining in your in the if you're creating a Creative Commons license or if you're using one, you need to know the key license terms. The key license terms for a Creative Commons license are attribution, no derivative works. Uh, attribution is mm-hmm. is uh, the mark that says by by. Uh, no de- no derivative works is uh, the equals sign and N D uh, November mm-hmm. Delta. And then share alike, which is SA, and it has the uh, sort of recycling-like circle with the arrow. It's a circle arrow. And then there's the non-commercial, which is the dollar sign crossed out. And mm-hmm. there are, I want to say, eight different combinations of these um, for the license <laughs> in public domain. So like, you can combine these all kinds of different ways. Um, there may be more more than eight, but those are the ones that I am most familiar with. And you need to make sure that you're looking at the correct creative commons license and you know what all those terms mean. Attribution means that others can, if it's just attribution alone, then others can copy, distribute, display, perform, and remix your work. If they credit your name as requested by you, it looks like his is uh, let's see. Blades in the dark product of one seven design creative commons attribution 3.0 unported license um, for blades in the dark. So, this one is the CC by. So you're free to share and redistribute the material in any medium or any format, and you're free mm-hmm. to adapt. So the, that adapt means derivative works, remix, transform, build upon the material for any purpose, even commercially. So I would say mm-hmm. for this particular thing, um, the best thing for you to do would be to give him an attribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and just say, look, this concept of the clocks as used in this story was inspired by, um, you know, uh, the the Blades in the Dark material owned by One Seven Design and developed and mm-hmm. authored by John Harper. Um, you don't necessarily have to throw his Creative Commons license in there, but if you check all those boxes, I think you would be okay. Um, and you know what? It's never a bad idea to email. Um, someone like Mr. Harper and say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing with your work. Uh, your work is licensed under this creative commons license. My understanding is that I could do this with it. Uh, Mm -hmm. is that cool with you by the way? Like Mm -hmm. you've inspired me to create this thing. Is it cool with you if I do this? And if he, if he replies and emails you and says, yeah, you know, love what you're doing. That's really cool. 
then you've basically got his blessing and you don't have to worry about it. The old saying that it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, not true of copyright. (laughs) Sure, sure. Totally, totally jive with that as well. Yeah. So I think basically to sort of sum it up, look at the particular licensing, kind of analyze exactly what it's asking you to do and where... If any, you know, I think what's important to say is don't look for wiggle room here. Yes. But if you're that person that doesn't want to like dive into every symbol and like figure out what that means and you're just potentially not doing your due credit to do that stuff, probably ask is a yeah. good good first step. But also, you know, cover your basis, at least form some sort of ludography of, you know, this work is is pieced together by this. Uh, this combat system is inspired by world of warcraft right or you know if it was that same sort of structure right and the more say hey the bigger i recognize this is what i'm doing yeah totally and the sorry to cut you off but the bigger and more litigious the owner of the copyright material is the more cautious you should be uh and the more you should expect them to say no right like but if it's yeah if it's one dude who created this you know who's created a bunch of material and he's an artist too and you feel sort of simpatico you feel this sense of artistic kinship with him or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying use that in a manipulative way, but wouldn't mm-hmm. you like that as well? Uh, at the end of the day, right. whether it's me developing my law firm or you collaborating with other artists to create new things that inspire people, I mean, we can all abide by the golden rule. For me, that was uh, asking what would an entrepreneur or a small business want their relationship with their lawyer to look like, and then developing a business model based around that. For you, it might be uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you in a creative context. If you would want someone to ask for your permission for to use your work in that way, then you should ask mm-hmm. other people for their permission to use the work in that same way. It's do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, that's just a really great principle of reciprocal kindness, consideration, compassion. Mm-hmm. Great. That's, that's a beautiful answer. And kind of what, based on our last hour of conversation, yeah. I thought the answer was going to be anyways, yeah. but I wanted to make sure it was out there for people who it may not be clear. For. Totally. Yeah. Um, the last little bit here, as, as we start to wrap up, my last question from a listener is that, when does it sort of make sense to become an LLC from like what, at what point do you start thinking about like, I'm really starting to rake in, you know, an amount of income here from my creative properties. And I kind of want to separate that from my personal bank account. When does that sort of make the most sense for me? I always think that like right off the bat, like if you really think you're going to dive in to doing this thing, just do the limited liability clause that protects your own bank accounts and stuff like that. But I'd love a more professional take on that. Right. So a limited liability company or a corporation, both of those are separate legal entities. Imagine, imagine you're creating an Android that is going to own all of the things that you associate with that business. Now, the Android is completely subservient to you. It does not have a will of its own, but it does have the legal right to own property. And everything that it does, you're not personally responsible for, but you're the one really telling it, okay, Android, go do X, Y, and Z. 
Um, or And you can do things on behalf of the Android and you can say, hey, I'm doing this in my capacity as a representative of this Android who, who needs me in order to function. Uh, but it's really his, his stuff, his intellectual property, his rights, right? So you can, you kind of have to conceptualize these companies, these LLCs and corporations as separate legal entities, a separate person. And in the tax code, mm-hmm. it refers to them as a separate person. And if you remember uh, years ago, the Occupy Wall Street m- moment mm-hmm. or movement where they were saying, yeah, companies are not people. That's factually wrong. Companies are people. The Internal Revenue Code refers to them as people. Now, they are not a natural person. They're not a human born of flesh and blood, but they are a legal person and they're a separate person. When you create one of these people, you have to be equipped. You have to be prepared to operate them You know, it's like if you don't want to think about it as an Android, think about it as a mech. And when you get into that Mm -hmm. mech, right, and you're kind of like stomping around and shooting lasers, right, like everything you do while you're in the mech is is mech responsibility. And it's going to protect you. Uh, If someone's shooting at you, it's not going to hit you directly. It's going to hit the mech. Now, if you're grossly Mm -hmm. irresponsible or you're just a really bad mech pilot, then some of those might break break through and actually injure you personally. Right. It's not just going to damage the suit. So you do have to be really responsible with that, careful how you use it. Um, and to get away from the metaphor a little bit and be a little more specific and answer your question, I mean, you, you first need to start with the right mindset, the right frame of mind, and think about it in conceptually in the right way. But functionally, in a practical way, um, you also need to um, be prepared to do some specific things and to know when to, when to do them. I would say anytime you want a business to be bigger than you as an individual um, or bigger than you and your buddy or buddies, like whoever you've got um, mm-hmm. to, to build the business together, when you want it to be bigger than those people, you need to create an entity. Um, when you want to create something that has objective value independent of what you bring to the table, then consider forming an entity. And you really should talk to a lawyer and present a business plan. So what you want to do is write the business plan first, you know, when you have the idea, when you have the seed of an idea, the germ of an idea, and really think about who you're going to get involved. Um, who is going to be the key person that, uh, everybody associates with that brand. Who's going to be the the person that's sort of influencer, the personal brand that's, that that business is going to be tied to. Um, you might think about like Steve jobs and Apple, right? Mm-hmm. Like Steve mm-hmm. jobs was the brand, the personal brand most associated with Apple, um, Bill Gates and Microsoft. I mean, there are these key people of influence in an industry who are associated with businesses and, and business brands, especially on social media, tend to tie themselves and align, uh, tie themselves to and align themselves with key people of influence. So who's going to be that person? Who's that founder? Who's the the figurehead of the business? Who's the CEO? Who's going to basically talk to the head of marketing and sales, the head of finance and accounts and the head of operations who gets stuff done in the business every day? Who's going to bring those people together and be the glue that holds your whole leadership team together? And then who are you going to have in those functional specific roles? Who's going to be in charge of marketing and sales? Who's going to be in charge of finance and accounts? Who's going to be in charge of operations? And I would say that a successful 
lifestyle boutique business that's making between five and ten million dollars in revenue, like if your target is to build to that so that everybody can live a nice life and have enough income and not really have to worry too much about, you know, where the money's coming from, you're gonna have enough money coming in to pay the expenses of the business, and you're gonna kind of stay and hover at that five to ten million dollars of revenue level, then you're going to need a four-person leadership team. You're going to need that CEO. You're going to need the head of marketing and sales. You're going to need the head of finance and accounts. You're going to need the head of operations. Each of those people should have a contract with the company that governs their employment. You're probably going to also need to have other lower-level managers and employees um, in your organization or independent contractors. But a team of four can run a business of that size. You need to understand the life cycle of a business and where you are. Like early stages, it might be best for your business to be run as a partnership, not a limited liability company, not a corporation. Run it as a general or a general partnership. Have adequate insurance to cover any liabilities. Use contracts. Have legal counsel. You don't have to have the liability shield of an LLC or a corporation in order to be adequately protected when you're very small and your business is low risk. Mm. As you start to build things that might be higher risk for you or need to be objectively owned and independently held in a, in a legal entity to, you know, where you can build value that's attached to the company and the brand of the company, as you're building that and you reach that lifestyle, like, you know, you start to approach the lifestyle business, um, that might be the first point where you start to have more conversations with your lawyer about should we transition from a partnership into a limited liability company or even a small corporation. Um, if you're doing things on Kickstarter or you know where you're raising a lot of money, you don't have to worry so much about um, you know having a corporation or having an LLC. But like in terms of like legal protection and and who gets the funds, like you can get funds from Kickstarter as a person, right? But at the same time, it might create more investor confidence that even for even though they're not investing in your company per se, they're investing in products and getting specific rewards. It might create and inspire more confidence in what you're doing, and it might show a degree of business sophistication for you to form one of these entities. That alone is not a good enough reason to do it, but it it is one of those contributing factors that you can think about. If you're trying to do equity crowdfunding, however, which was Title III of the Jobs Act, which was passed under the Obama administration and the subsequent regulation that's followed it. If you're trying to raise investment in the business itself through crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding, then you're going to need a corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at that point, like it really, it, when you need the entity, when you need the legal entity, when you need the LLC or the corporation or whatever, comes down to the life cycle of your business what your goals are, what you're building, whether it has value independent of who you are, um, how big your team is. There are a lot of factors. There's no one trigger point, and it's going to be different for pretty much every business. I would caution you against trying to use a one-size-fits-all solution or trying to think about this as something that's fire and forget. It's not something that you do one and done. It's something that you, Mm -hmm. you create it, then you maintain it, and it grows and it's dynamic and you can shift from one type of entity to another um, 
based on where you are strategically in your business, the life cycle of your business and what your goals are, what your assets are, what your team is, what who your investors are and and how much they're trying to invest and so on and so forth. Uh, typically a large performance driven enterprise like a global small business that's making 25 million or more in revenue something like that it's it's more common for them to be a corporation whereas the startup that's struggling through the wilderness of getting from startup to lifestyle business and you know struggling boutique and they have less than a million dollars in revenue totally reasonable for them to be a sole proprietorship if it's just one owner and you know if you're mm-hmm. going to do that if you're going to have just one owner and the other people work for that person not with him but for him then you need to make sure you have good employment contracts that disclaim any partnership uh, relationship mm-hmm. and say yeah no state law partnership we're not two or more people doing business together for profit it's this guy who owns the whole business or gal or whomever right whatever your preferred pronoun is um it's this person who owns the business and then these people work for them as employees or independent contractors and then if you have Mm -hmm. two or more people doing business together for profit you have a partnership and you want to specifically have a partnership agreement that sets out the rights and obligations of the partners who they are you know who is in the partnership who's not what their relationship is to other people who are doing work in connection with the business and so on. Um, And really, I think for a lot of people, they use LLCs to kind of simplify some of that stuff, but um, it might be overkill and it can be kind of expensive overkill because at least in Tennessee, um, it costs $400 a year to create and maintain the existence of a limited liability company. It's $300 a year to the secretary of state mm-hmm. for your annual, for your initial registration, your, the filing of articles of organization, and then the annual report. And you also owe a minimum $100 a year to the department of revenue for your franchise and excise tax. And in other States, mm-hmm. you know, you, you may have corporate income tax that you have to comply with. There are all these taxes, regulations, and fees, um, and you might not, you might say, well, I'll form in Delaware or Nevada or whatever. But if you do that, you might form your company in that state, but then you might also have to register to do business in your own state. So like a company like Tennessee that forms a Delaware corporation and then they do business in Tennessee, they probably need to register with the state of Tennessee. And so it's actually going to end up costing them more. They'll have the duplicative regulation you know, duplicative registration requirement and doing everything twice. And really, if you're only doing business in one state, it might be best to just form the entity in that state, whether it's a company, um, you know, LLC or a corporation or whatever. The bottom line is this is not an easy, like it seems like an easy question. And there's a lot of stuff online that will mislead you into paying some, some money to do something that's not necessarily the right thing. That's kind of a DIY solution. And that's going to be like buying a Halloween costume. It might say one size fits all on the tag, but have you ever bought a Halloween costume? Had that work out? <laughs> you know, like, was it really one size fits all the best thing to do? It's you really want your company to be more like a, uh, a Comic-Con cosplay costume that's designed to win the con- the competition, right? That's what mm-hmm. you want. You want something custom made for you, like hand handcrafted, stitched together with quality and good materials. And the way you get that in a corporate formation, business formation context is you call a lawyer, you have a conversation, you tell them what your goals are, you listen to their advice, and then you follow it. And if you do mm-hmm. that, you'll get a much better result and you won't have to pay to fix it later. Yeah. It sounds like sort of the, 
the sort of wrap up of all of that is that it's a question of, of what scale are you at, right? Yes. If you're a single person working by yourself, you don't really probably don't really need to delve into else, even though, you know, you might read it, provide some protections, some are like to sue you or whatever have you. I think that might be a little bit less of a concern unless, you know, you're dabbling in copyright area, but then you should have a lawyer, right? Yeah. Uh, but you start advancing into that LC territory when you start adding other people of equal sort of responsibility for the creative endeavors you're involved in, right? When you start having someone who's managing all your social media accounts, someone who's handling all of your financial work, someone who's handling all of your um, project management sources, you know, working with art direction and everything like that. When you start adding people at a common level, you're hiring the same person over and over again. You're like, okay, I really like to form a partnership with you let's start to evolve this business. It's starting to scale to a point where like, I, I can't protect everyone under or myself underneath this enclosure of business. Right. So let me change into something else. And then more continuing to analyze that scalability. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We had uh, the audio cut out there for a second. Um, but yeah, more owners and more, uh, collaborators, people who have skin in the game, right? Allow you to scale up your organization. Having skin in the game is what it really comes down to with, do you want to have an LLC? Do you want to have a corporation? Do you want to have a partnership who has skin in Mm -hmm. the game? And you might say, well, you know, as I'm scaling up early on when revenue is low or we don't have any revenue, we have some basic level of investment to kind of get things done. Um, people who've brought, brought some money, invested some money. Um, but we don't really have any revenue yet. Uh, you're going to have to pay some, you're gonna have to pay people for their work, right? And one way to compensate people, at least in part, um, is through equity in the business. You can give them an ownership stake in the business, how you structure Mm -hmm. that and whether or not you're in compliance with the wage and hour laws is a, is a very technical legal issue that you need to talk to your lawyer about. Um, so Mm -hmm. if you're considering, saying, well, I, I need someone to handle, to be my director of operations or my director of finances and accounts or my director of marketing and sales, but I can't pay you a salary yet, or I can only pay you minimum wage, right, for mm-hmm. your work, but I'll give you this percentage of ownership in the company. That's a good way to grow your initial team and have like founders on board who are like uh, their interests are aligned with yours. When the company makes money, the, when it makes a big profit, then they make money. They get just they get to participate in those distributions of profit, mm-hmm. and so that can be a good way to scale your early team. But you need to find people who share your vision and believe in what you're doing and are willing to build it alongside you. And that's a, that's a, often a good trigger point for starting a company. Bless you, Ron. <laughs> yeah, I hit the mute. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, well, then, Noel, I think that is going to bring us to the top of the show uh, at the end here. I, you, <laughs> I, I don't know how to thank you enough for the information that you provided here today. It's all really good stuff. And I think it definitely, uh, distills a lot of that Google searching headache that people would probably have to go through to find potentially 50% of the true information 
they need out there, right? So uh, I'm really happy to have you on here. Why don't you do a final plug of like where people can find you, hit you up? I mean, obviously all these links will be in the show notes, but give give your little give your little plug spiel here. Yeah, so um, I just actually want to give you a resource. Uh, I don't want to just plug myself, yeah. but I, I most of my marketing, I've spent very little on a- advertising um, over the last eight years of running executive LP. Instead, what I prefer to do is create things of value to other people. And then if it's valuable to you, hopefully you'll share it. And, you know, it's, you know, each one teach one and all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. what I want to direct your audience to, since we've been talking so much about business formation and intellectual property in this episode is I have a book. It's very cheap. It's on Amazon. It's called how to structure your business for success. Not the best title, not sexy or catchy, but it it does what it says on the tin. How to structure your business for success. Um, it's also available f- through the self-publishing sales platform, AER.io. But you can grab it off Amazon, wherever other books are, you know, wherever good books are sold. Um, it's how to structure your business for success. Self-published, distributed through Ingram Spark. Um, you know, that was the publishing self-publishing platform I used. So if you're writing a book or you're interested in that, I had a good experience with Ingram spark. I really like them a lot. Um, but they're the ones who helped me print and distribute my book. So you can buy that, how to structure your business for success. Um, and if you're interested in what I'm doing with how, you know, profit from legal, basically transforming legal from a cost center in your business into a profit engine for your business, you can go to profitfromlegal.com and read more about that. Um, and pretty much all the services that I offer are described in great detail on executivelp.com. My law firm is Executive Legal Professionals PLLC. We're a professional limited liability company, um, but it's executivelp.com. There's a blog there with tons of free resources. We have links to PDF reports and uh, our digital diagnostic tool is available. It's linked from uh, profitfromlegal.com. You can go and, and take a, our digital diagnostic. And that's kind of the last resource that I'll direct your attention to. The digital diagnostic we have is called the Legal Profitability Scorecard. And the reason that you want to take this, even if you don't have a lawyer, whether you have a lawyer, you don't have a lawyer, take the Legal Profitability Scorecard because as you read through the questions, and, and there are 40 questions, and they might be unfamiliar to you, but just do the best you can with it. The, the value is in reading the questions. As you read the questions, you're going to get a sense of what it is that a lawyer can do for your business on a regular basis. If you're like, I don't even know what I would use a lawyer for. Or I don't need a lawyer. I've never been sued. I can't tell you how many times I hear that. I hear that from people at networking events and so on, like, oh, I'm so glad I haven't needed a lawyer yet. And every time I hear that, I think this is a person saying this who doesn't know what a lawyer is for. They don't really know, mm-hmm. you know, they don't know the job that that's a tool for, right? They don't know the, they've never encountered the problem that that's the solution for. They haven't yet, but they probably will. And the time to get the solution, the time to buy the tool is before you have the problem. It's when you can prevent your risk that you always have from becoming a problem um, that if it goes unsolved could be a crisis in your business. So 
don't have the crisis, don't even have the problem, just keep things, you know, a risk that's well managed. The way you do that is with a lawyer. And if you can't imagine what you could possibly need a lawyer for, take the digital diagnostic, it will tell you, and then you'll get two free gifts from us uh, just for taking the digital diagnostic and completing it. The first one is our legal profitability report. It explains what legal profitability is, um, how to use, you know, basically a bit about legal key performance indicators in your business. Um, this is what a lawyer should do, and here's how to measure whether or not they're doing a good job, basically, is what's up. Um, and then the second gift is our five legal ease canvas. And this is a really great template that you can use to solve problems or improve relationships in business generally. Uh, however, right, the five legal ease is our signature method. Um, and this canvas that you can download for free uh, contains an exercise that if you follow the exercise, you follow the instructions that are in there, um, it'll help you solve problems better manage relationships better. It's it's designed to be an introduction to thinking like a lawyer a little bit more. So without, you know, being, I don't know, the stereotypical lawyer person, right? Like, I think people think of lawyers as stuffy, um, you know, that you think of like, even in a, a gaming context, you know, what do we, what do we call the guy who's always the red mage, like sticking through, you know, sticking it to, to you with the rules, right? They're rules lawyers. It's kind of a derogatory term, but we want you to think in a way that, um, takes into account other people's incentives and the rules of the game that we're all playing by, whether that's the, the game of life or the game of business or whatever, you kind of have to be aware of the rules and uh, not violate them so that you don't hurt yourself. That's, it's all about, mm-hmm protection, increased productivity, less stress. Like we all have a more fun gaming experience when we play by the rules. It's the same way in business. Business is a lot more fun when you play by the rules. Um, Otherwise it's just chaos and everybody gets really paranoid really fast. Yeah. (laughs) So that's it. I hope I'm not even plugging myself. I mean, I'm directing your attention to resources, but I'm not asking you to buy anything from me. I just want you to have these things that we've created for you because you can access all of the things that I mentioned, except for the book for free. The book is cheap. The other things are free. Um, tons of free resources out there for you. And of course you can tune into the profit from legal podcast and we'll tell you more about free resources and how you can use legal to do better in your business. Profit is what happens when you get everything else right. That's what Yvonne Chouinard said. And I agree with that. Um, you know, profit is what happens when you get everything else right. And I'm just here to help you get it all right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Noel. Uh, for everyone that's listening, I've had an absolute pleasure learning from Noel. I hope you did as well. And we will see you on the next episode of draw your dice. Say bye to the people, Noel. Bye everybody. Thanks for having me on. And I really appreciate Jeremy, um, you inviting me to be on your podcast. It's just been a wonderful, (laughs) lovely experience and uh, just happy. I could provide some value for you guys today. Thanks again. It was a pleasure having you on as well. All right. That's a wrap. Lots of really good starting points to munch on when it comes to the growth of our endeavors to earn a living doing what we love. Thank you for the insight, Noel. All the links to get in touch with Noel will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you like the show and found it helpful, send a tip my way by following the link tree in the show notes to my Kofi or Venmo profiles. Or if you are unable to provide monetary support, you can provide support at no cost by sharing this with someone you thought of while listening to this episode and leaving a review. 
Both of these methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you want to be a part of the conversation or hang out with alumni like Noel, you can visit the DYD House Discord server. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.